Right, yeah, you'll have seen, uh, I imagine, looking at the, uh, the sermon or the uh, notice sheets, whatever you call them, um, that we're continuing through 1 Corinthians, this time taking a, a bit of a, a bigger chunk, as it were, um, looking from uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 21. Uh, I'm sure there could be uh, good sermons preached on, on shorter sections, but I thought that there are some, some larger themes which are laid out um, within verses 6 to 21. So rather than uh, deep diving into each verse, as it were, um, to take a, a bit of a larger bite, and I hope that's a, a blessing to you. But uh, in order to sort of prepare us for the, the section ahead, um, it's good for us to, to reflect on the, the culture with which Paul writes to. Um, so Corinth, as you might remember, or if you're good at geography, which is not like me, if you're good at geography, you might uh, recall is Corinth is on this what's called an isthmus between two sort of larger sections of land, one in the north-ish, one in the south-ish, and then there's this uh, smaller chunk of land that joins the two. And so it was on a a very popular and well-used trade route. If you were going to go from the northern section to the southern section, you'd likely pass through Corinth. Um, And so it was a very wealthy city and also a very uh, salacious and, and sinful city, one that was puffed up, and prideful in spiritual things, and you see that pretty clearly in the way that Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians in this letter, uh, and very sectarian, as indeed uh, has been addressed in the, the first five verses of this chapter, and Paul continues to lay out in, uh, in what we'll go through today. You see Paul addressing those who uh, are, are fans, apparently, of, of himself, those who are fans of Apollos, those who are fans of Cephas, and maybe those are the equivalents of today, the uh, no creed but Christ, those who are apparently just a fan of Jesus, but also have what seems to be their own kind of sect, as it were. Um, so this is the culture that Paul writes into. This sets some of the background for, of course, what we'll see today and what we've seen in times past uh, and into the future. But in in sort of broad summary of, of verses 6 to 21, Paul bids the Corinthians not to think higher of himself and not to think higher of others than they ought. And he rebukes them in fatherly love, providing for them in ongoing discipleship, caring for their spiritual needs uh, in the sending of Timothy. Uh, and I love that uh, you probably heard me reflect before. I love that there's not only the uh, what you could potentially deem the, the negative, there's the rebuke, uh, but there's also the positive in that there's the ongoing discipleship which Paul um, advocates for and, and you see in these verses. But uh, we'll read uh, parts of chapter 3 and also the entirety of chapter 4 in a minute. Uh, but just in, in catch-up from last time, the, the points I made... Uh, each started with insist, and they were fourfold. So firstly, insist that your focus be on God, the one whose servants, the apostles, preachers, and teachers are, the one who has given them gifts to steward. Secondly, insist that apostles, preachers, and teachers be in character and in doctrine faithful. Thirdly, 
insist your citizenship and identity be found in Christ, then the opinions and judgments of others will have their proper place. And fourthly and lastly, insist you seek from God what can only truly come from God. Do not seek the world's imitation. Or you might say, don't seek cheap thrills when you have access to godly commendation. And uh, you might recall, and it still is amazing to me, that Paul talks about uh, in verse 5, then each one will receive his commendation from God. And the notion that we would receive any kind of commendation whatsoever from the Lord is surely an amazing concept. But let's let's read through a little bit. Um, We're going to read through chapter 3, verses 6 to 15 because these verses show some of what Paul describes himself and his companions as, uh, and then the entirety of of chapter 4. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Now, chapter four. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And our verses for today. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. 
We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labour, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this this section of scripture, which we'll delve into today. And thank you for the entirety of your word, which you have blessed us with. Help us to learn many good things from it day by day, uh, to put them into place, that we would live in accordance with your ways, glorifying you, spreading the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. Uh, I pray in accordance with what Joel has already said, Lord, that you would get me out of the way and that you would simply feed your people uh, through the ministry of your word. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reason uh, in particular that I wanted to look at the, the section of chapter 3, which we read through, uh, is because verse 6 of our, our target text today um, starts with, I have applied all these things uh, to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So, of course, where you see these things or, or there before or as it is written or something like that, it's good to know what it's talking about. And so these things are the, the analogies which Paul has previously used in describing God's ministers, particularly himself and his companions, uh, but the analogies that he has used in describing God's ministers. And so in chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, you see that he refers to himself and others as farmers, essentially. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In verses 10 to 15, as builders, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then at the start of chapter four in verses one to five, as servant stewards, he said, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And one thing which is prevalent in all of those examples and I I think is is good for us to remember again today uh, and is readily applicable, as as we'll hopefully do in a second, Uh, in each of those examples, God is the focus. Not the ministers, but the Lord whom they represent. When he talks about farmers, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but 
God gave the growth. When he talks about builders, he says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder. And then he goes on and finishes by saying, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And when he talks of servant stewards, he says, this is how one should regard us. This is the very, probably the most explicit one. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, where you see a servant of someone else, surely it is the one whom they serve who is the focus, not the servant themselves. So we are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so being sequential in the text, uh, it's not surprising that this lines up with one of the points that I raised from the, uh, the previous message, being that we insist that our focus be on God the one whose servants, the apostles, preachers and teachers are, the one who has given them gifts to steward. Paul goes on to to bid to his readers, to those in Corinth, and again applicable to us today, uh, to not go beyond what is written, that none of you be puffed up in favour of one against another. Don't favour one against the other. Look to the one whose servants, uh, these Sorry, look to the one who the servants point to. Verses 7 to 8. And I'll read these ones, but given the next ones are larger sections, I'll I'll let you go through them again at home. Uh, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. So these verses uh, focus on the Corinthians, and then verses 9 to 13 go on to focus on the apostles. But I think in in looking at the, the question which Paul asks, for who sees anything different in you, that first question, uh, it's good for us to, I think, look at a few of the other translations. I tend to... Uh, read from the ESV and, and use it in preaching and study, etc., etc. Um, but I think looking at a few of the other translations gives us a, a bit of a wholer picture or more whole picture of what Paul is trying to address here. So the ESV again says, For who sees anything different in you? The NIV, the New, New International Version, says, For who makes you different from anyone else? New King James For who makes you differ from another? And the New American Standard, for who regards you as superior? So from the the ESV alone, uh, it could appear that Paul is asking, what is actually different about the life and example of you Corinthians? Uh, But I think when you sort of take in mind the the consensus of those different translations, Uh, it reveals a a greater consistency with what has proceeded in verses 1 to 5. And so if you'll allow me a a more elongated and paraphrased version um, of the whole of what, what Paul's getting into, you might come up with this. All that you have, those who teach you and the gifts you yourselves have, are gifts from the Lord. Therefore, who sees anything different in you? What makes you think you or your particular sectarian preference 
is to be preferred over another. What's more, why do you pridefully boast in such things as if you were superior for having such a preference or having such gifts? All that you have is a gift. It seems as if uh, the folks in Corinth had taken this prideful kind of a stance, you know, because I am Paul's or I am Apollos or I am Cephas, a part of that sect. Therefore, I am somehow superior um, to my brothers in the faith. So to apply that today, I said we'd make application. For argument's sake, and and I largely agree with this argument's sake, let's say that being a, a Reformed Baptist is a good thing. Let's also say that it's good to hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith or or perhaps the the Westminster Confession of Faith or other good confessional standards. Let's say that it's, it's a good thing to hold to these documents. We'll throw in also, and I'm sure Scott would readily agree, or I hope he would, Um, that it's good to listen to folks like John MacArthur or James White or or James and Sam Renahan, other faithful preachers. We'll say that those things are are good. But if we claim some sort of superiority because of our being acquainted or associated with these things or these teachers and preachers, then we've missed the point of what these things hopefully are attempting to do, be they Uh, the documents that I mentioned, or be they the preachers and teachers uh, that I mentioned, or or other ones that you might come up with. And if we're prideful because of our acquaintance with them, uh, then we've become guilty of the same sin as the Corinthians did. And so if this is you in in introspection of yourself, let me or, or perhaps Paul ask you, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And let me be clear that uh, this is not a bid for, as I sort of joked about before, this is not a bid for no creed but Christ, but it is a bid to recognise at least two things. The first being that these things, be they teachers, resources or personal gifts, are gifts from the Lord. And secondly, that these things are meant to point us to the Lord and be used unto the Lord, used unto his service. So my my broader point from those verses, teachers, resources and personal gifts properly understood increase humble praise of God and not prideful praise of man. Properly understood, they increase humble praise of God and not prideful praise of man or perhaps prideful inward focus. And so hence Paul goes on in verse 8 to sarcastically praise the Corinthians, noting they were doing the opposite of this point. In their self-righteousness, their sectarianism and their worldliness, they were acting as if they they already had and were rich rulers, as it were. So Paul goes on in verses 9 to 13 to draw a comparison between the godly life of the apostles and such an attitude as the Corinthians had. So as I mentioned, verses 9 to 13 uh, go on to talk about the example of the apostles, and I'll I'll have a look at a few bits, but perhaps I'll I'll leave you to skim over it now or or to go over it again at home. Uh, But turn, turn with me to 
Philippians chapter 4. Which is always a bold thing for me to say from the pulpit because I probably said before I'm actually really terrible at finding books in the Bible. So I found it, so you should be there also. Philippians chapter 4, we'll get to in a second. With this terrible list of adjectives that Paul goes on to use in, in the First Corinthians passage, describing Paul and his fellow apostles' existence, uh, it's good to remember what he says in Second Corinthians chapter 4. Even after having said in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, he goes on in verse 17 of Second Corinthians to say, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says, on the one hand, we were afflicted in every way. And he says, similarly terrible things in 1 Corinthians. But he reflects, he has his focus in the right place. And he says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you've heard it before from, uh, from others, perhaps from me, but the, the sufferings or the joy, whatever life might give you in this 80, 90 years, whatever it is that you're given here on earth, is just is not even comparable to the, the eternal weight of eternity. And so whether it be a difficult existence that you face or whether it be one of great ease, none of it is going to appear to compare, I should say, to the the length of eternity, the weight, the glory of that place for those who are in Christ. So perhaps at present you are in a place of ease. Perhaps you're in a place of difficulty, I don't know. But praise and thank God for this. But don't look to your ease as a source of your contentment. Don't look to things or circumstances in order to give you peace. Look to God, the giver at times of pleasant things and circumstances. Let him be your peace. So with that as a background for Philippians 4, uh, read with me verses 11 to 13. And I want you to note uh, exactly what situations and circumstances Paul says that he's learned to be content in. Philippians 4.11 Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In some ways, uh, when we face times of loneliness, of hunger, of need, uh, it is easier to be aware of our need for God. And indeed, the, uh, the testimony of numerous folks within the scripture and, and Paul, as he describes the apostles in, in verses 9 to 13 in our target text, uh, displays that. They are in uh, positions of need, of difficulty, and it highlights their need for the Lord. It points their focus to him. So in sometimes, in some ways, uh, it's easier to be aware of our need for the Lord when we face times of difficulty. But are we just as aware of our need to find contentment in him 
when we face situations of plenty, of abundance, and a lack of physical need. And can I put it to you that if you are in this kind of place, that God potentially has you in a place of testing? Will you use the plenty, the abundance, the pleasant circumstances, the many good earthly gifts as servants in order to point your focus to Christ? And hence, will you be able to say with Paul, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound? Because these gifts, these these good and pleasant circumstances, these situations of plenty may well be a part of the good and perfect gifts which James details in his first chapter. But if we get caught up in the gifts themselves, as opposed to the one whom they're supposed to point to, then we've essentially engaged in idolatry and we've missed the point of these gifts. I think, and there's some... I see why folks do it, and I would do the same in in some circumstances. But I think sometimes we have a a view in Christianity where we think that Christians are supposed to be those who are always in lowly circumstances because that helps to point us towards the Lord. Now, the Lord certainly uses lowly circumstances to point us to him, but other times he gives us situations of great blessing and plenty and abundance uh, and arguably in the majority in the West, we find ourselves in that kind of situation. So will you use that in order to increase your devotion to him or will you use that as a distraction from him? Will you use the blessings which the Lord gives you in order to increase your affection and your appreciation and your service of him? Or will you idolise the thing itself, the circumstance itself which the Lord gives you? It seems as if the Corinthians had failed this test. And so Paul uh, sarcastically rebukes them for their pride in verse 8, noting they have all they want, have become rich and have become kings. In comparison, his description of the apostles is that they are last of all, like men sentenced to death in verse 9, weak in disrepute in verse 10. They hunger and thirst, are poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless, in verse 11. So the apostles, in their pursuit of God and the service of him, have become the antithesis, the opposite of what the Corinthians so pridefully flaunt. Again, it's not the circumstances in themselves that are the bad thing, but our attitude and what we do with them. So ringing in our own ears, perhaps ought to be Jesus' own saying that many who are first will be last and the last first in Matthew 19 and similarly in in chapter 20. And what is said in Matthew 8 in 19 to 20, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Why could Jesus face such situations as these? Because he had his focus on God, his Father. Uh, Indeed, the very same place where we ought to have ours. And so whether uh, the Lord knew situations of plenty or, or situations where he had no fixed address, as it were, he was able to have his contentment fully in God, his Father. 
So though there are biblical characters who love the Lord and know earthly good and plenty, oftentimes, as I said before, it seems to be that the Lord uses at least periods of difficulty in order to keep our focus on him, in order to keep us seeking first his kingdom, and hence our our reading earlier in Matthew 6. And so I want to make application from both sides of that coin. Could it be that the humble circumstances of the apostles is what kept them seeking after the Lord? And could it be that the abundance of the Corinthians compounded with their prideful immaturity is what led to their sin? Poverty and difficulty are not the marks of a Christian, but it is is good to acknowledge that the Lord uses such things to draw us humbly to his feet relying on him for our daily bread, be it literally literally or figuratively. So two points. Are you using your access to good resources, pastors, teachers, written material, etc., for your own pride or to increase your devotion to God? Secondly, are you using your worldly abundance to increase your affections for God the giver of such abundance, or does it distract you from him? And I hope I've described it in giving those <clears throat> those applications. Uh, I hope I've described uh, that this is not some health and wealth gospel, uh, but rather that the Lord at times gives such blessings, and so we ought to use them for the purpose with which they're given. At other times he doesn't, as per the apostles' experience. Verses 14 to 21. After having rebuked the Corinthians, saying essentially, look at you guys, you're really all that, aren't you? Paul now notes his intention in doing this. And this is that uh, that positive side of the coin, you might say, that I described. He notes his intention in doing this. Not, he says, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. The word admonish, for whatever reason, uh, caught my attention as I studied the text. Uh, And it means it's translated in various other places. It's synonymous with admonish, instruct, warn. I looked up a dictionary definition which said to reprimand firmly. But biblically, if if you look at the way that Paul and other writers use it, and it's not used a whole bunch of times, maybe, uh, maybe a dozen or so times in, in the scripture. Biblically, it takes on a connotation not of being angry necessarily in telling someone off, but in bringing a godly word of instruction or correction for the benefit of the other party. <clears throat> so in, the, in verse 14 of our current text, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. In Romans fifteen fourteen, the same word is used where Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct, same word, one another. In Colossians 1, 28, Paul says, him we proclaim warning, same word, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In chapter 316 of Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and 
admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So an application, uh, once again, a rhetorical question, as I kind of like doing, do you as a church and as families practice such a thing as bringing godly word or words of instruction for the benefit of the other party? Now, it's not, as perhaps springs up in our 21st century mind, it's not an arrogant thing to do something like that when it's done rightly, but it displays love for the other party, which hopefully is to be returned at some point. What's more, uh, Paul notes that he admonishes the Corinthians as my beloved children, and hence there's that benefit for the other party. There's that ongoing discipleship, which Paul is advocating here noting that he is their father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Uh, now, don't turn there because I'll just read it for you quickly. Uh, but the, the background of this is perhaps seen in Acts chapter 18, where Paul says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is how Paul becomes essentially uh, their father in the gospel. But having preached to them, having preached the gospel to them, seen them converted, Paul has a special uh, gospel or spiritual fatherly love over the Corinthians. And hence his admonishing doesn't come just as a boot to the backside, we might say, uh, but it's a stern warning out of love for his children. Proverbs 3 verses 11 to 12 reflects one of uh, perhaps my favorite things in the scripture. My son, do not despise Yahweh's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For Yahweh reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. It's uh, maybe not always pleasant to receive the discipline of the Lord. It's not always pleasant to receive the, uh, the rebuke of someone. But if we see that the point which this is pointing towards uh, as Paul with the Corinthians, uh, then we've done well. But in a similar way to what's described in, in Proverbs 3, as God's discipline is not arbitrary, nor was Paul's to the Corinthians. And two things to draw out of, of verses 14 to 17. Paul's gospel, fatherly love for his spiritual children are seen both in discipline and in discipleship, those not that uh, discipline is negative, but the, the difficult to receive perhaps, and in the positive discipleship, two sides of the same coin. And his discipleship is seen in his initial time with the Corinthians, in his writing this letter, and in the sending of Timothy, seen in verse 16. And consider this. Paul was an apostle, an evangelist, he traveled great lengths and endured much hardship for the sake of preaching the gospel of his God, recounting uh, once again that Paul would have 
walked or perhaps ridden on donkeys. He didn't have Qantas flying him all around or whatever the, uh, the Greek equivalent would be. He endures great hardship for the sake of preaching the gospel of his God. He travels great lengths. And yet still, in all of this, he had intentional care of those whom he had fathered in the Lord, who were under his spiritual care to a greater or lesser degree. And so to to apply this, and perhaps it's easier said than done, do you exercise fatherly or, or motherly discipline, love and discipleship to those under your spiritual care? Are you intentional and proactive in doing that? And what a what a body we would be uh, as those in Kuma, as those further afield, as those uh, under Christ, if we were intentional in doing such things, in being uh, proactive and intentional in our spiritual care of those under our spiritual parenthood, as it were. Because it's one thing, of course, to come together uh, to church on a Sunday, and this is good and keep doing that. It's another thing to actively invest in the spiritual welfare of those under our spiritual parenthood. And this applies to, uh, to pastors and elders, uh, but it's, it's far more broad than that. For example, husbands, do you wash your wife with the water of God's word? Ephesians 5.26 does apply to pastors. Pastors, are you active in the shepherding and discipling of your flock, of addressing sin, the spiritual welfare and immaturity of those within the congregation of preaching good doctrine? Older women, do you train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled? Titus 2, 3 to 5. Parents, do you teach the word of God diligently to your children, speaking of it as you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So the points, and I love the word proactive, even though I'm not proactive all the time. But the points, exercise proactive discipleship of those under your spiritual parenthood. And secondly, proactively seek out discipleship from spiritual parents. Sometimes there are those who uh, would be happy to disciple, but just need to be asked. And so it behoves us to, to seek out the instructions, seek out the discipleship of those that we would look up to as spiritual parents. So to conclude, and fairly quickly, as is my usual practice, Paul has bid the Corinthians not to think higher of themselves, not, be, not to become prideful and sectarianism and sectarian, I should say, as if their particular preference of apostle were somehow to their own credit. Rather, the Lord has given uh, the apostles and, and many, many more things as gifts to his church in order to to point them to him, to increase their humility, not their pride. And Paul rebukes them, the Corinthians, in fatherly love, providing for them in ongoing discipleship, caring for their spiritual needs in the sending of Timothy and indeed in the writing of this letter. So the points, and they are 
sixfold, I think. We'll see. Firstly, teachers, resources, and personal gifts properly understood increase humble praise of God, not prideful praise of man. Secondly, are you using your access to good resources, pastors, teachers, written material, and more, for your own pride or to increase your devotion to God? Thirdly, are you using your worldly abundance to increase your affections for God, the giver of such abundance, or does it distract you from him? Fourthly, do you as a church and as families practice such a thing as bringing godly words of instruction or correction for the benefit of the other party, which is hopefully to be returned once again in due course? Fifthly, exercise proactive discipleship of those under your spiritual parenthood. On the other side of the same coin, perhaps proactively seek out discipleship from spiritual parents. Let's pray that the Lord blesses his word to us. Thank you, Lord, for this text. Thank you for the, the things which you have detailed in it. And I pray that, that these words, that which is of you, would stick with us, that it wouldn't just be uh, remembered and, and given the tick of approval or otherwise uh, during this time of, of corporate worship, but that what is good, Lord, or perhaps what you have specifically for us this day would stick in our minds, would plant itself deeply, would grow and bear much fruit. Lord, may uh, inasmuch as this word goes out uh, to different nations or to others in the same nation, Lord, bless their hearing of it also. We thank you for these brothers and sisters, and I thank you for this gathering here today. May it all be to your glory and in your name. Amen.